Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Caitlin Cooper of Basketball She Wrote on Patreon. And, of course, our primary focus on this podcast is the Indiana Pacers. A little bit of a catch-up on how things have gone after the Pascal Siakam trade. Of course, Caitlin has phenomenal analysis on what we know, what we don't know, and everything else. And then we go through, really, the rest of the roster, the impact of the Buddy Heald trade, some of the notable rotation and roster decisions that Rick Carlisle and the front office have both the rest of this season and moving forward. And as you could guess with with Caitlin coming on, it is an absolutely excellent episode brought to you by a new sponsor, Factor Meals. Go to factormeals.com slash realgm50 and you get 50% off. That's why the 50 is in there. And our friends at FanDuel, fanduel.com slash Boston. And this episode runs a little bit less than an hour. So much great stuff in here. And and yes, it is Pacer-centric, but first of all, Caitlin is incredible. And second of all, like it, it is a, a really good way to understand, I like to say, you know, basketball in general. Like We talk about a lot of different actions and the things that the Pacers are and are not doing. So even if you're not Indiana-focused, I think this is well worth your time. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me on again. I talked to you about potentially doing this a little while back because the idea for me was taking stock of the the early returns for the Pacers of the massive Pascal Siakam trade. And of course, you know, we're only 15 games, 500 minutes into Siakam's tenure with the Pacers as we're recording this podcast. But I wanted to start there of, of how is it looking so far to you? Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, is it's not just only 500 minutes of Siakam. It's only like right around 200 of Pascal and Tyrese. That's right. And I think that's a pretty big key component of it, because even when Tyrese did come back, he's been on a minutes restriction. They had the game against the Kings that I kind of jokingly refer to as like a jumbled Mr. Potato Head game where there was like a foot and an eye socket and an arm and <laughs> in the foot because they tried to rearrange Tyrese's minutes restriction so that he could play in the fourth quarter. And in so doing, they didn't really even need him necessarily in the fourth quarter because the lineups that they were putting out there were so jumbled together. And then even, even since then Tyrese's minutes have ramped back up and I think he's going to be good to go here after the all-star break as far as that goes. But he's been a little bit gun shy as a shooter. You can tell that he wasn't completely a hundred percent. So getting the two of them involved at the same time and what their two man game has been, has kind of been the most interesting thing to me, in part because they've kind of existed in somewhat separate spheres since he's come over there. And not only because he played a lot of games without Tyrese, but when you think about it, it's kind of hard for Siakam to screen for Tyrese in a lot of games because typically he's going to be defended by the other team's best wing defender. So if he comes and sets a screen for Tyrese, then Tyrese is just getting, you know, a top defender switched onto him. And even sometimes it's been a little bit clunky at times. Like they're playing the Knicks and, you know, not very often does Tyrese get defended by Jalen Brunson, but there's a few possessions where he's defended by Jalen Brunson. And then Siakam's like bringing a screen when ideally you probably just let Tyrese go one-on-one at Brunson and try to either create a shot or get to the rim, make a pass. So that type of stuff. And then in the reverse of that, so far, Tyrese has only set seven screens for Pascal. Mm. Inverted isn't something that the Pacers have looked at a lot with him. And I've also made a joke where I've kind of talked about, like, I probably should have known that Buddy was on his way out because Buddy had only set, like, 
10 total screens for Pascal. And like in that New York matchup, Buddy's the person who is predominantly being defended by Brunson and down the stretch. That wasn't even really something they looked at. Instead, it was more so like Siakam's being guarded by Precious and he's screening for Andrew Nemhard or sometimes when Tyrese came back in the second game, he's screening for Tyrese. And now you're just getting, you know, New York's switchiest big switched onto the ball. So a key takeaway, I think, in talking about the two of them being involved at the same time is in the game right before the All-Star break, they ended up getting, I felt, a pretty decent momentum win headed into that break over the Raptors. And the key play that Siakam ends up scoring to put them ahead on, Tyrese actually comes over to set a screen for him. Scotty Barnes pre-switches it, and R.J. Barrett starts to look over his shoulder just ever so slightly to see that Tyrese is coming, and Pascal rejected that and ended up getting a basket there in the restricted area. So to see them close out the game with the two of them doing something that hasn't regularly been a feature of the offense, I thought was pretty big headed into the break. But I will say that overall, I don't think it has to be necessarily a bad thing that they're not always screening for one another. It's just been a trend to watch. And in the long term, and the expectation is that this will be more of a long-term partnership for both Mm -hmm. sides, there could be some benefits to kind of Siakam establishing more of a, an identity within the team that is a little bit separate from Halliburton in the very beginning, but there's still plenty of time. I mean, we're roughly two months away from the the start of the postseason. It's a little bit less than that. And I mean, one thing that that sticks out to me is like, I mean, I'll use cleaning the glass, even with Hal Burton's absences. And we, we, I mean, last year, you and I had a conversation about how this, how that affected the team. The, the Pacers still have a plus 6.3 clean the glass net rating when Siakam's on the floor. And that, in in part, is why they brought him in, is the idea that he could help stabilize some of those groups while also, of course, functioning very well with Halbert. And I think this is going to sound funny to people listening, but I think in part some of what's really encouraging about that is because like I pointed out in the game against Phoenix, there was a moment with a sideline out of bounds play where they made him the inbound passer logically because he had only been with the team a couple games they had not practiced they're on a west coast road trip they hadn't been back home and you can see Andrew Nemhard in the clip like telling Siakam like okay after you make that pass you're gonna you're gonna run over the top of these and then basically just clear out so it was very evident that like Pascal does not know all of these plays yet and by the end of that game he had 31 points like to a certain degree some of it has just been very organic even with some of the clunkiness that I just explained because he is very good at just finding his own spots it's very easy for the Pacers to you know establish him doing early work in transition and get him the ball with him sealing or he just comes up out of the corner and sets a quick quick touch screen for a guard. He gets that mismatch, and then he can go to the work in the post a little bit. And the post-ups, like everybody will likely remember, and I certainly remember it, you know, Rick Carlisle's commentary when he was still in Dallas about Porzingis in the post and why that wasn't necessarily a good play for that particular team. But the way that the Pacers are getting post-ups for Siakam, it's almost tricky sometimes for second spectrum and synergy to track it because it's not like a static post-up. It's a lot of right. times with Siakam doing a bully drive and backing his way down into it where the offense doesn't have to be quite a standstill in order to get him those types of touches so when you're saying that and you look at the cleaning the glass numbers it's like you can point to various hang-ups whether it is like like what you said that they haven't played with Tyrese or that sometimes I feel like he's even underused like you can point to an end of the game and be like oh well Miles Turner had two defenders there on that sideline out of bounds play against Boston and Andrew kind of missed just giving it to Siakam who was open or sometimes they don't see him with some of those mismatches and maybe Ben's you know going to throw the ball off the backboard to himself and he doesn't notice that that Siakam has that switch and still like I feel like offensively 
it's been pretty seamless. And when you do look ahead to the playoffs and you see how much gravity that Siakam commands a lot of the time, like he's obviously, he's not the help defense presence on his drives is lower than what it is in Toronto. And I think that's a good thing and speaks to what the Pacers overall spacing is. But a lot of times he does draw a double and the idea that it's going to be really hard to double both him and Tyrese at the same time should relieve pressure on the two of them, even if it isn't, you know, just directly, uh, a screening action between the two of them. So I think that there's still stuff and I'm sure we'll get to the defensive end of the floor, but I think that the Pacers overall should be pretty encouraged by what they've seen given what all they've been up against since he's come over. That additional context I think is really important. And I mean, it's been a fascinating January and early February for the Eastern Conference. And I mean, so you had this jumble of teams at one point where they're basically a bunch. And then you had at that time it was the Bucks and the Sixers over the jumble. But for the Pacers right now, as we're recording this, to be 31 and 25, not only the sixth seed, but when Philly having their own issues. And I mean, I, I think the Knicks are, are playing well overall. They've just been dealing with their own. I mean, they have two of their important players are probably going to be out going out of the All-Star break. But for for them to do that, when their best player, the person who was the straw that stirred the drink for this, basically this recent run, to have be not only missing some games, but also limited a lot of the time when he was playing, either in number of minutes or just in what he could do when he was out there on the floor. Like, you never know what storms could be coming, but they've definitely weathered one and they're not really in a significantly worse position after it, which is such a different story from last year. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's not even just the Tyrese piece because they obviously traded out Buddy Heald. They've tried to be incorporating Doug McDermott. I mean, Rick Carlisle talked just before the break, Benedict Matherin did not play in that game against Toronto and he talked that he didn't think that he had been looking right in the prior several games. I mean, Ben, I think, was four of 21 headed into the all-star break over his last 20 shots. You could tell, I think, a difference in his ability to finish at the rim, The how flat his shot looked. He, I think he had banged his leg in one of the games against the Knicks, and, and Rick had mentioned that they were going to hold him out of that game. So, I mean, they were to the point in that Raptors game where they were also giving minutes to Oscar Shibway because Jalen Smith has back spasm issues and Miles Turner was out. Illness had run through the team. So I think it's exactly what you said. I think that there are some things that cropped up that were a little bit concerning to me at times, and I'll keep an eye on them here out of the All-Star break. But the fact that by comparison to last year when Tyrese was out and they go one of nine over those 10 game stretch and they just never were able to recapture that same degree of magic that they had leading into it when he got hurt. This is a very different play. Let's go back to the defense. It was something that you mentioned before as something to discuss. And just for the for the big picture stats that we have it, Indiana, clean the glass again, a 118.4 defensive rating when Siakam has been on the floor. That is not fantastic. Of course, there are plenty of context that we can add in there in terms of opponent shooting. And honestly, it's not opponent three-point shooting. That's actually been lower than average. But everywhere else, and then, I mean, of course, all the other things that factor in with defense, what have you seen so far? Yeah, I mean, I think they've slid back to 25th in defensive rating again since he's come over and I it's interesting because people have asked me what exactly do you point at or put your finger on for why this is going on or why it hasn't necessarily seen improvement especially when you consider the fact that they've moved Andrew Nemhard into the starting lineup he in my estimation prior to the Siakam trade I would point to him as having been the most impactful defender on the team I think he's their best at staying skinny over the top of screens I think he shows a lot with his off-ball defensive instincts I think he has really good feel on that end of the floor they're starting him they've moved Aaron Neesmith to his more natural position at the three and especially when Nemhard's out there 
there, that means that Nemhard can defend more at the point of attack. So Aaron's not necessarily picking up fouls as quickly, having to pressure the ball up the floor. Like these things should all be working in their favor. And you have your arguably best defensive lineup you can put out there around Tyrese. And yet it's still not really coming together. And in the past, like, especially over the beginning part of the season, I could point to it and be like, you know, this coaching staff tried a very different scheme to start the beginning of this year where they're trying to limit threes as much as possible and really defend pick and rolls two versus two, not send help in a lot of situations. And that's vastly different from last year and it's still not producing results. So at that point, you're kind of looking at the roster and you can see, you know, this team with this many guys who are six foot five and under, they don't have a wing defender to throw at a lot of, you know, these types of players who are setting career highs and season highs against them. That's the hole. And so they get Siakam and like he and himself isn't going to completely plug that hole. And I understand that. But like over his first, I would say, four or five games, I thought he was pretty impressive, especially by comparison to what his defense looked at the tail end with Toronto, where it kind of looked like there had been a bit of a soul tax given what was going on up there. And I kind of expected there would be a quick rebound. And there was maybe in the first game against Phoenix, he was playing some at the five when the Suns were playing Kevin Durant at the five and went small. And I thought he had some really impressive possessions closing off the water, sometimes two, even three times with quick rotations. And here headed into the break, I don't, I, I can't really fully put my finger on what's exactly gone on with him. Like if you look at the beginning of the game against Houston, the beginning of the game against Charlotte, there's breakdowns in a lot of different situations where he's running into contact on off ball screens. He's having trouble getting over the top on on ball screens. I have some quibbles with why they're having him chase over the top of screens so much instead of using him as a switch defender. There's times where he's kind of in no man's land and help where he's not really closing out, but he's not necessarily helping either. Like there was a, there was a lot of breakdowns in the game against Charlotte. And obviously as a team as a whole, they gave up over 80 points in the paint in that game against Toronto headed into the break. And a lot of that had to do with their transition defense, which again, this isn't just me trying to point the finger only at Siakam. It's that when you go out and get Siakam, you're hoping that he's going to address some of those issues and that you're going to see at least some marginal jump and improvement on that end of the floor. And there hasn't, necessarily been a big jump so I think they kind of have to be hoping at this point like I don't know maybe if he was just completely running out of gas from having done a trade midseason if there's I think some of it might have to do with the way that they're using him like what I mentioned with some of the screen navigation things I would like to see him switching on a lot more screens rather than being expected in a bigger body like you can see some of this sometimes too with like Giannis and Evan Mobley right where if, if you're able to screen them at the top of a zone or you're able to screen them on ball screens they're going to have trouble getting over because these are just big dudes for lack of better words but I think they gotta have to hope after the break that he comes back with his legs back under him or at least that they've given some thought into how maybe there's better opportunities to use them because in their defense you could tell that they were really experimenting at times like do we want to outright assign him to the other team's best wing or do we want to use him as a rumor uh, a roamer like sometimes they might put him on Grayson Allen and see like how do we like his weak side back rotations or do we want to assign him to guards and kind of use him and contain so I think they're still kind of toying around and figuring out exactly how they want to use him but I can't say that I can sit here and tell you like oh the defense for the Pacers is getting better like I I don't know that that's necessarily happened the biggest surprise to me statistically and again I'm emphasizing we're we're small sample size theater Mm -hmm. here pretty firmly and again I'm going to narrow it for this for this point but like one of the biggest surprises to me Pacers have been really good offensively, like 123.5. Siakam on Halbert off. I never would have expected that, but they've been so much worse defensively. And I, I think you made a really good point with how they're going to use him. And I think that connects with uh, a point that 
that I want to get to a little bit later, but also this idea, well, actually, screw it, let's get to it now, of this move in concert with the Buddy Heel trade, which which really surprised me for a couple of different reasons when it happened, is it, it seems like at least preliminarily, and again, things can change over the course of time, with Siakam, you know, presuming presuming he resigns, Neesmith got the extension, and you trade away Heald, it seems to me like there is an intended starting five here when everyone's healthy. And that I didn't expect to come out of the deadline with at least an expected starting five for next year. I thought it was going to be a lot more fluid. In terms of Andrew Nemhard being the starter at the two? Well, Nemhard or like Matt, like Nemhard, Matherin, Heald, like the idea that it was going to be something there. And I know that Heald had been more marginalized kind of towards the deadline. And so maybe that was some tea leaves that you were able to read that I, you know, just because I'm watching 30 teams as opposed to a few. Um, did you see the Heald kind of thing coming? Was that was that something that you anticipated? I will say this. I think a lot of the buddy trade and, and fr- from an outside perspective, like it, it, it seems a little bit incongruent if we're being honest, right? Like the Siakam trade is very much like a win now move. Like they're hoping to keep him in there long term and continue to grow that partnership with he and Tyrese, certainly. But if you get Siakam, that's with an eye toward the playoffs and what he's going to help you do in the playoffs and hoping that you can learn more about yourselves or you can surprise teams in that particular arena. Then, you know, within a few weeks, you're moving out buddy healed and with all due respect i think that doug mcdermott can help them and i've seen what he can do in a pacer uniform i've also seen what he can do in rick carlisle's offense when he played for the mavericks but there's different levels of movement shooters and the chemistry between he and tyrese i don't think is going to be to the level that it was between buddy and tyrese and then they frame it after they make that trade as you know this is a move for the long term and from what i know and understand i think a lot of that move had to do with the business of basketball i think they were pretty far apart and extension negotiation conversations and at the risk of losing him for nothing they did as they said they made a move for the future and they got some assets and draft picks i think they still realize that movement shooting is important to a rick carlisle offense and important to the flow and the lyricism that this team's played with so they tried to salvage it somewhat by going and getting dug and i think that they also know in the back of their heads like we do have benedict Matherin, we do have andrew nemhard and we do have ben shepherd as well and you're hoping that ben shepherd in particular can start making more shots as he did in the game late in the fourth quarter against toronto but that being said i, I don't think that you can look at it and be like just getting rid of Buddy is somehow going to necessarily be addition by subtraction, at least for the rest of this season. I, I I I know that the fan base had soured to a degree on Buddy, in part because he his cold streaks were colder this year. Like he had already had as many games before the trade deadline that he had only made one or zero threes as what had happened all of last season when he played in what was it, 80 games. So despite the fact that his percentage was still decent and you know above like right around 38 percent he had had games where he's making one three or zero threes or you're watching a game and Tyrese is getting trapped a lot against the Miami Heat maybe he goes three of 12 in that game that's that's frustrating for fans to watch but it was a point that I made it's a point that Tyrese made before the trade deadline when he said you know I still have complete faith and trust in Buddy that Buddy brings a degree of gravity because of what his reputation as a shooter is because of how savvy he is at relocating that nobody else currently on the roster brings. So like a clip that I would bring up that 
I think, somewhat telling of Tyrese and what the current state of the team is, is they're up in Toronto. And because Tyrese is starting to be face guarded more, he's seeing increased trapping. The Raptors were pretty aggressive at trapping both he and Siakam in the first half of that game. Tyrese is being used as the stack screener, so he's going to set a back screen for Isaiah Jackson, who's setting the ball screen for Andrew Nemhard because they run more through the opposing guard in times when Tyrese is being guarded like that. And when he pops out to get the ball, he loses Emmanuel quickly and and beats him off the dribble. But Andrew's defender comes all the way off, which was Gary Trent Jr., and jump switches onto Tyrese at the free throw line area. And Tyrese ends up getting his shot blocked on a pull-up too. And that's Buddy Heald in that scenario. Number one, Tyrese is most likely going to be the ball handler and Buddy Heald's going to be popping out. But thirdly, Buddy Heald's defender is going to stay attached to him. And, and that hadn't really been affected by the fact that he had had some cold games this year. When you look at the closeout numbers on second spectrum, only 5% of the closeouts the Buddy Heald drew this year were short closeouts. And that's the lowest mark of anybody on the team. So I probably think a little bit more highly of Buddy. And I think it sometimes it was easy to blame him. And he didn't always necessarily get the credit that he probably deserved in certain situations. But he's also not going to get the stop at the end of the game that Ben Shepard got against R.J. Barrett that ended up sealing that win for them, and that's something else that I recognize. So to answer your question in a very long roundabout way, I did not expect them to necessarily... I wasn't going to be shocked if they moved Buddy because obviously if you think that he's going to walk and you don't see him as part of your long-term future, that's something that you're going to do. But I didn't necessarily think that they were going to do it for things that weren't going to help them win yet this season in terms of just going and getting draft picks. But maybe, you know, if that's the best offer that's out there, I suppose that's what you do. Lots more to discuss, but first a message from FanDuel. Get buckets with your first bet on FanDuel, America's number one sports book, because right now new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 bet. That's $150 if your bet wins. You can bet on all your NBA favorite players and teams with quick bets, live same-game parlays, exclusive props, and more. Just visit FanDuel.com slash Boston and shoot your shot. FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NBA. Must be 21 and over and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued at non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXTSTEP to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net in West Virginia, or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 27 27- 24-7 support in Massachusetts, or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York. 
It's fascinating. And part of the reason that the Siakam trade stood out to me, and part of this is because I'm a cap CBA guy, is that it allowed them to spend to retain a few different players, you know, depending on what ownership is actually willing to spend. And so like when the, when the trade happened, I'm like, oh, Buddy Heald is the most logical of those guys. And even if you're not completely sure what his place is in the rotation long term. And it's a weird market. You know, maybe he could even end up getting a little bit overpriced out there. It was just like, it it seemed like the way that things things were going to go. And so to move him, as you said, for not not in a transaction that like, you know, gave them an interesting young player or something else like that. And they, they, they got assets in return and they got a player who is a worse Facsimile, but you know, in the same, like if you, the little fuzzy, fuzzy version of the shooter archetype, even though they're very different players. And so that was a, a big surprise for me. And it, it becomes an even further one because then you start to wonder, and I don't want to dwell too much on this unless you want to go down this road of, well, okay, so now in assuming Siakam sticks around, which I think is a reasonable expectation, even if it's not, you know, like rigidly there, it's like, okay, so the Pacers are going to have a reasonable amount, depending on what happens with Obi Top under the tax they could use the and 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 they of course you know they've made other moves and so they're they don't have that bruce brown option lingering over everything right now so they could do a couple of different things but there isn't a clear path like there was before and so a team going from clear to murky is always notable even if it ends up having a justification and when in heald's case it appears that there was at least an expectation from the pacers that he would be elsewhere and with an unrestricted for agent that dynamic is very different than of course a restricted one yeah i mean because it's even more interesting because at the time when things were really heating up that it looked like they were a front runner to get pascal i at the time was like you know buddy's gonna be the best movement shooter that pascal's ever played with yeah. like maybe in the heights of kyle lowry and fred van vliet but like he's never had that degree of a weapon and that's why i said it was so interesting to me because you're watching you know down the stretch of that knicks game when he's still out there and twofold like the pacers didn't necessarily help him because brunson goes off for 40 against them and they got hesitant and this is a dynamic we could probably talk about with the Pacers because their rebounding is still what their rebounding is and they were hesitant to double Brunson for a large portion of that game because the Knicks are the number one offensive rebounding team in the NBA so they get in the fourth quarter they start having to double more and I believe the Knicks offensive rebounding rate in that quarter they got 10 offensive rebounds they had 23 for the game so it's like, what are the gravitational waves when you have to send another defender? So Buddy gets isolated on him twice. Brunson easily scores. And again, like I said, it becomes easy to be like, ah, he scored on Buddy. But in reality, like Brunson was hunting Tyrese in that game. He hunted Obi Toppin in that game. But point being, at the other end of the floor, Buddy's being guarded by Jalen Brunson. And like I mentioned at the top of this podcast, they weren't using Buddy as a screener to get like inverted for Pascal to get downhill. It was just more of Pascal being a screener for Nemhart for whatever reason that was. And like I said, I probably should have seen all that and been like, well, you know, maybe this is a sign that they don't necessarily see him to be in the long-term plans. But that's just another element of it because Tyrese, like you like that play down the stretch against Toronto, but he's not the same caliber of a screener. Like you could even see that in a game the few times that they ran those Spain action with Pascal or with Tyrese as the back screener like there's times where they'll have the big forego the ball screen element of that and they'll just have Buddy set a back screen or a rip screen for them to duck into the rim and then you know Tyrese will reject that screen Tyrese isn't actually making contact 
on those back screens. So then they're just having to reset. And now it's like Isaiah Jackson having to set another ball screen on the same play for Nemhard. And then you're playing deeper into the clock. So like when you look at it overall, and I'm not at all like anybody who's listening to this, I'm not at all saying that this is directly a product of them having or not having Buddy Heald, but their offense has dropped off a bit since this trade has happened. Their defense hasn't really changed and their transition frequency has has sunk quite a bit over the last month or so and a lot of that's because Tyrese hasn't been available and he certainly sets the tone there but as I've pointed out in a lot of cases like Tyrese sets the tone and their identity is built around him but Buddy Heald sprinting to the line in transition is also a big part of that extension in terms of how you have to guard him when he's running to a 45 and the way that that shifts the defense and transition as well so it's definitely something that like we'll see how it goes I think when the Pacers frame it as something that this is a move for our long term then that makes me have to judge it by okay what do you end up doing with those second round picks that you got do you end up signing somebody else that it's like oh okay in the summer that's why they wanted to maintain that and they didn't want to necessarily overpay what buddy healed was because i I can say like i'm not going to go into detail about the exact number but from what i know and understand the number that they offered him seemed pretty in line with what his skill set is and clearly it's totally his right to go and test that and see what he can get in free agency but you know that's what i said like when when they frame it as a long-term move then i guess i have to judge it by what they end up doing with what they got back it's also fascinating so let's say it is in that general that general concept is that a lot of times in that circumstance and this could be the case with the Warriors and Clay Thompson another shooter though their overall games are are meaningfully different where the player wants more than the team is currently offering but you retain their rights on the idea that the player ends up potentially being wrong and maybe that means that Heald has like he thinks he has more of an offer out there maybe it's unfounded confidence We'll, we'll, we'll of course find that out in time what I want to turn to and I think this is the other for me big picture question with the Pacers and I set this up a little bit and I I, I should have mentioned them hard more in it in the kind of a little bit earlier but it seems like assuming Siakam resigns the let's say for 24-25 beyond that gets a little bit complicated because of Turner Halliburton Siakam Miles Turner are three of the five starters closers however you want to see it most important players on the Pacers from my eyes and correct me if I'm wrong it seems like at least right now Neesmith has a has an advantage for that fourth spot though there is some fluidity with that depending on how everybody plays but part of what makes the heel trade and a part of what makes their overall kind of moves there so notable and so interesting is that there are a lot of different paths for the remaining spot and different options that over the course of the next couple of years could either firm up their place or erode their place depending on how everything goes and I think that's in part why this season was going to be so important like before I knew that they were going to exceed expectations and Tyrese was going to explode into looking like a legitimate MVP candidate at the start of the season. I thought watching the development tracks for Nemhard and Mathern was going to be key and very important for the Pacers to get to the season and know that either one of them or both of them was like, hey, th- these this is a key piece of our core. And it was very evident in the summer from a number of tea leaves that you could read that Ben was going to be in pole position to be the starter as he was to start the year. And in the back of my mind, though, lurking was Nemhard. Nemhard was very impressive at Summer League, and it was kind of a thing of, you know, if Ben comes out and takes a step forward and Nemhard doesn't, then this is a moot point. But if as the season goes, Nemhard continues to do what got him into the starting lineup last year, which was, you know, he was a second-round pick who went to being a key starter because of what he added defensively, especially for a defensive-starved roster, and also what he can bring to you, which I think is important in the playoffs, is having a two-guard who can run offense for you. And that's something that's showing up 
bringing up, like I was just somewhat critical of what Tyrese is as a stack screener at times in terms of the level of contact he can make and knowing, you know, which side to leak out on and where to leak out on. But you can have Andrew Nemhard go out there and initiate for you. And that's something that like as much as I can point out and be like, well, look, Gary Trent Jr. just helped all of the way off of Nemhard and, and jump switched on that. You're not going to have Buddy Heald out there running a pick and roll, most likely with Tyrese as the stack screener. So that if Tyrese is seeing those types of exaggerated coverages, that's something that Nemhard gives you that nobody else in terms of their young pieces is going to be able to offer. And the numbers between he and Tyrese are very strong when they've been out there on the floor in terms of the two-man net rating. I think they're almost like at a plus eight, which granted isn't a huge number of minutes, but still I think that's where you look at it. And it's interesting too, because I look back at it now and I remember at media day, they were very much framing that playing time was going to be earned and that there was going to be a lot of competition at training camp. And Rick Carlisle was asked, like, what are going to be kind of, you know, the criterion for who you're looking at when you're looking at rotation spots in the starting lineup? And he was saying basically defense and playing with unselfishness. And then it was interesting when the season started because Aaron Neesmith and Andrew Nemhard weren't in the starting lineup. And those two kind of characterized those two characteristics probably you know, as much or more than anybody else on the roster. And as it's turned out, as the season went on, we now have both of them back in the starting lineup as they were last year. So Nemhard, and then also with Matherin, like Matherin, I think as Nemhard was a few months ago when he looked banged up coming back from his back injury and, and was having some issues with his handle and didn't have quite as much bend coming off the screens. Matherin hasn't looked like himself over these last four or five games. But I think the thing that I've learned most about him with regard to that spot this season is, is that there has been a real benefit and you understand now a little bit bit more why you like having him come off the bench because his usage given that he's predominantly what he is as a scorer his usage goes up in the minutes when he doesn't play with Tyrese so it swings by about five percentage points where he's going to be getting more of those touches he also pairs I feel really well with TJ McConnell because TJ McConnell more so than Tyrese and Nemhard is going to get two feet in the paint. He's going to be attacking baseline and from the sidelines. And that really unlocks Matherin as a cutter. There's other certain like horns get actions where Tyrese or TJ, I mean, will throw the ball to Ben at the elbow. TJ can get a hand back to get to the rim, or then that becomes a pick and roll for Ben to attack out of the elbow and get downhill with his left. Like he likes to do to get to the rim. There's just more that you can do like certain plays that were like, if it's Tyrese and Ben out on the floor and you're running like some of their Ivers and sets where Ben's going to run from wing to wing and get the ball on the second side. Normally if Tyrese is on the floor, Ben's going to throw that ball back to Tyrese and that's going to be for Tyrese to attack against the tilted defense. If Ben's out there with TJ, TJ is going to throw it to Ben. And then you might actually get to see Ben do some stuff in like secondary pick and rolls where he can do more of what he does as a scorer. So I just think for the overall like construction of the roster, like this particular rotation in terms of playing Andrew initially with Tyrese and the starters and letting Ben do his thing off of the bench just makes a lot of sense for the team. And it is, it doesn't necessarily have to be a commentary on like, you know, Andrew versus Ben or which one of them is better. I just think that it makes more sense for the rotation and the other players who are out on the floor with them. Chemistry and play style matter so much, and it's, it's something that can be really hard to anticipate. And, you know, you and I talked a fair amount about Benedict Matherin before he was drafted, and then, of course, after Summer League, and, and players also adapt and evolve. And so we'll mm-hmm. see what, what Matherin looks like in time. Another another guy that is interesting to me, I don't know exactly where he's going to fit into this mix long-term, is Ben Shepard. Yes. Where, like, I mean, he's had some interesting, some, notable, some good defensive plays. Also, like, in, you know, only, like, what, three 
150, 400 minutes or something like that. His shooting hasn't been quite where I would have expected it to be based on the reputation. Wasn't somebody I watched film on. So we're talking early, early returns for Shepard. But is there, do you, do you have a pathway for him to potentially be a player in this mix? I'm not going to say necessarily winning it, but being in this mix for the fourth or fifth guy. I think that has to in part be why they were also okay with moving on with Buddy is that maybe it makes it more palatable because you already have Ben waiting in the wings. And in part, like, I know that his teammates, especially during training camp, really liked playing with Ben Shepard because he's somebody who is kind of like the moon to a degree. Like, you don't always notice him, but he provides, like, a stabilizing force in the background when when there's wobbles happening in terms of he he's somewhat like Buddy in that he really knows where to move to not only shape up around the ball, but create spaces for his teammates to drive in by how he relocates and creates gaps and he knows how to slide into passing lanes. And I, I thought he was really, really strong in that fourth quarter against Toronto when they ended up closing with him just before the break. In part because, like, you know, like I mentioned with Siakam and Tyrese seeing a lot of trapping in that game, there was a possession late where Siakam gets trapped, has to take a couple negative dribbles. Andrew Nemhard flashes to the nail area. He's pretty good at making plays out of the middle of the floor in those situations, and he finds Ben in the opposite corner, and Ben makes a three. Ben made another three off of movement, which is like you said, like I, I did not expect going into the season that I would be talking about Ben Shepard's defense and the fact that Jairus Walker was making a decent amount of threes this year. I certainly thought it was going to be the reverse of that, where we would be talking about Ben Shepard as a shooter and be talking about Jairus's defense. But Ben moves his feet incredibly quickly on defense. He's good at switching out to the ball. Um, he's also very good in terms of, I think he might literally be the best player on the roster that when they veer switch or they late switch over a screen and he has to get into a big and actually apply some pressure and get into the legs of that guy or front the post that he's going to be very aggressive. He has a surprising amount of functional strength in those particular situations. So in terms of how he could fit into the rotation, unfortunately, Aaron Neesmith gets hurt in that game and is dealing with an angle entry coming out of the break. He's already been ruled out for the game that's coming up against Detroit. I don't know how long that's going to end up holding him out, but, and I don't know how Rick Carlisle sees it, but if it were me personally, I would give a lot of consideration to starting Ben coming out of this break, just for the reason of what I just mentioned I think that there's a lot of benefit, especially now to having Benedict Matherin off the bench as a scorer, as somebody that you can look to at those units. They are looking a lot that I've noticed that they're starting to have Pascal play with four bench players as well to have him kind of act as the through line in those types of situations. But I just think that Ben Shepard's low usage, Ben's going to be able to do some of the movement shooting, some of the screening type things to keep the floor balanced. That makes sense. And then also just defensively that continues to keep kind of the continuity of that lineup in terms that they have kind of shifted the approach that they're putting their best defenders around Tyrese and the starter and in the starting lineup and Ben Shepard certainly qualifies among that so I think here in the immediate there's there's a path forward to him getting minutes and I think that he's somebody that they should continue to try to find um, minutes for toward the back end of the season. Plenty more to discuss, but first a message from Factor. Factor meals are actually something that I had found on my own a little while ago, but super happy to have tried them out now, and their delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. Wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian-approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, vegan veggie, and more. I've been really impressed with everything I tried so far. My favorite was probably the the pork chop, which had a rice cauliflower with it and a nice pesto sauce and then green beans. 
And they're even more to enjoy with over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons that'll help make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. So head to factormeals.com slash realgm50 and use the code to get a 50% off. And that's why it's realgm50 at factormeals.com slash realgm50 to get 50% off. They have two-minute meals, snacks, smoothies, and more. And one of the things that has impressed me the most is super easy to prep, super easy to clean. And so as a new parent, there are times that that is exceedingly valuable. And to do that in a healthy and well-executed way is extremely great for me. And I hope it will be for you as well. So head to factormeals.com slash realgm50, R-E-A-L-G-M-5-0 to get 50% off. Again, that's factormeals.com slash realgm50. There's a part of me that gets excited when a player who has a rep as a shooter, and, and again, with, with Shepard, I didn't watch Phil Munn in the Belmont, um, but, you know, he, and, and he was somebody who was never a great free throw shooter there, which is always, you know, that's something that people track just because players typically take a lot of, you know, you're building out the sample and so you can use free throws as a part of the modeling and estimation and all that. But if a player has a reputation as a shooter, and maybe you're saying that they're below their career expectation, but but they're providing value in other ways. It is not a certainty, but it is a possibility that they can eventually keep the defensive part of it and then become a better offensive player than they've been so far. And so the idea with Shepard would be, okay, you get this stuff in there and then eventually do it. And, and there are risks, of course, with Pacers that they, Aaron Neesmith, who is shooting a preposterous 45% yeah. on six six threes per 36, that, that tones down a little bit because most players don't shoot that well, especially with, with their history even though Neesmith has had some good stretches in his past. And so having another option in that space is definitely a good thing for the franchise. And like you, I don't know exactly how that's going to materialize. And I think that's a part of the Pacers story that is going to be a huge thread for me. And I'm guessing even more so for you in this final stretch, you don't say the second half because the All-Star game is not halfway through, is both with that kind of perimeter rotation like we've been talking about, but also with the dynamic of the backup five spot when you have Jalen Smith and then to a lesser extent you have Isaiah Jackson of, okay, maybe none of their options are perfect, but at least they have them and who steps out, who who shines in their opportunities, it of course affects this year, but it also affects not only who is in the rotation moving forward, but also what resources you can bring to bear. Because if that ends up being that, you know, Shepard can take on that kind of role, he is, of course, as a first round, late first round pick on a team friendly contract for another couple of years. And then you can instead use the, let's say, the non tax pyramid level or however you want to do it, team resources, if you want to just think about it that way, on a player who fills a different niche. And I think in part, this is what's so interesting to me about the fact that the Pacers have been so deep in rotation players this year and that when you've gotten into closing time like what we've mentioned like the dynamic of for the most part for now they have Siakam so like you said you know that it's going to be Tyrese you know that it's going to be Siakam you know that for the most part barring a few exceptions it's going to be Miles Turner and that they don't necessarily know who those other two spots go to and part 
part that's a plus because they do have a lot of different options these guys offer different dynamics in terms of who you can put out there but also like do we have rock solid like i think you can probably pencil aaron neesmith in there as well but like do we have that rock solid option and then will they continue to play this deep because in part this has been their strength like it's very hard to play against the pacers and play against what their pace has been on a nightly basis will they continue to lean into that in the playoffs like will they be willing to play deep so that they can maintain this identity and continue to try to impress this type of a system on teams then or will the temptation be there to shorten the rotation because that's generally what teams do and then who fits into that and who doesn't because on a lot of nights like what you just said like I think that there is a case when you look Ben Shepard and Andrew Nemhart are following somewhat similar tracks and that what I said before like Andrew mainly got onto the floor last year because of his defense and I think that's mainly what's given Ben Shepard chances to continue to be out there in ways where Jarris has yet to really crack the rotation is that Ben when he's been given those opportunities has won those opportunities with his defense so he continues to get rewarded in those types of ways is that what way Rick Carlisle will continue to lean when they get into the playoffs and that's kind of that's why I think the playoffs are going to be so important for this team to actually make it not only because they took the swing on Siakam but also because I think it's going to be illuminating as to how they need to build moving forward in terms of which players work in that particular setting. The other positional dynamic that I didn't mention in the kind of like figuring this stuff out is power forward, in part because we know who the starter and closer is, and that's Pascal Siakam. And the Siakam trade stood out to me in part because it also was a position where the Pacers had a significant investment in other players. And they didn't give up a ton to get Obi Toppin, but Toppin is a player who, of course, has, has a name around the league and who is a pending restricted free agent, assuming he gets a qualifying offer. And then they used a lottery pick on Jairus Walker. And when you bring in Pascal Siakam, not say, and this is a consideration in the move, not a primary thing, it does make it harder for those players to make an impact. And you could, and I would argue this, that that is a justifiable sacrifice to make because Pascal Siakam is a significantly better basketball player than either of them right now. But it is a a different challenge. Not only like, I mean, Carlisle is an obvious focal point of that, but it's also player development and everything else to not only push these players in the direction that you think would be best for their games, but also evaluation because Obi Toppin is a pending free agent and Jairus Walker you know you you get that lottery pick shine and you don't need to make a decision on him right now in fact I would urge the the Pacers to not do that but you do need to think over the next couple years about well where is where is this going to go and is that maybe some like Pascal at the five lineup some different concepts there or is it you know he's going to be a backup until he can earn more consistent role I mean, that's what was so interesting leading into the trade, right? Because there was all the reporting that the Pacers were very resistant to include Jarris in any of these deals. And as it turns out, like they, they really didn't need to. They didn't have to include any of their young players in order to swing this trade and ended up being more draft capital based. But like you weren't willing to include him, but you're also getting a guy that foreseeably, if things go to plan for the next four years, is going to be starting in front of Jarris, at least at the four spot. And that's why Jarris is going to be interesting to watch because he's obviously played, you know, a lot of different spots from high school to what he ended up doing at Houston. And I've even adjusted some of my expectations for him because I remember last summer when I was looking at it and what I noticed about him at Houston was like, hey, he has a pretty decent keeper. And when he uses that keeper, he actually gets all the way to the rim instead of where he can be a little bit more floater dependent rather than actually, you know, as 
as the mic'd up segment with Tyrese revealed about Lloyd Pierce saying he wanted Jarris to attack more with violence. His physicality doesn't always match his physique in that setting. So I kind of thought, you know, with what his skills and overall feel as a passer are, with what he can do in the short role, maybe he's ultimately somebody that you look at in like a Draymond Green type role, not necessarily comparing them as players, but in terms of the types of things that you can run with him. And maybe he ends up being somebody that you play at the five and you play in very switchy lineups. Then the season starts and he's shooting the ball. He's corrected some of the drift where he was drifting very heavily left on his shot at summer league and in preseason he shot you know i think right around 40 percent in the g league not a lot of those are off of movement it's a lot of standstill threes but still he's shown development in that area that makes me think like you know okay so maybe i'm more confident in his ability to do like traditional forward things in addition to doing some wing initiation but you watch him and he's also like bringing the ball up the floor and doing a lot out of the pick and roll at times of the g league level so exactly determining what he is he's only played like eight minutes of three so far this year and there's very rare times where the Pacers will throw out lineups where like Siakam and Obi Toppin and Jarris might one of the three of them will be at the three it's happened very minimally but it has happened and it's kind of a thing of like if Jarris is going to play he almost needs to be a three otherwise like necessarily how is he going to play unless they don't end up retaining Obi this summer like unless they just are very confident in what they end up seeing Jarris the rest of the year and what they've seen of him in the G League and they end up determining not to make that decision otherwise you probably need to feel confident about him playing like a power wing type role. Otherwise it's going to be hard for him to be getting minutes, which is, you know, a very different situation that you probably would have anticipated when they were making this draft pick a year ago. And you kind of thought they were going to continue to be more in rebuild mode. I anticipated that he would be able to earn minutes. And then as it turns out, they were far more competitive, but it also was evident for the things that you said that like they didn't have a starting four on this roster. Like Obi's been successful and for a large portion of the season, he was leading the league in two point percentage. He's shot the three really well for his position this year. But it was an indictment, if we're being honest, that there would be games where like Buddy Heald's guarding Kyle Kuzma, Buddy Heald's guarding Giannis Antetokounmpo in the starting lineup and Obi Toppin isn't. Or like you would watch Kyle Kuzma and he'd call up for a screen to get Obi even when he has Buddy in space and could just attack Buddy. So there was reasons why they had moved Obi out of the starting lineup. And there's also obviously reasons why Jairus hasn't necessarily been part of the rotation that gave them further motivation for why when you can get somebody like Pascal Siakam, you go get him, but it does complicate matters as far as exactly in what way and how you're going to develop Jairus. And I think that they've done good with what they've done with what Tom Hankins has done with him at the G league level. And I think he's shown progress, but in terms of how he gets out on the floor and what you think are going to be his strengths, you have to make sure that those two things align and match up. It's also setting up a fascinating off season for the Pacers because they traded away. Not only they said they don't have their own first round pick, but then they traded away some of the, the extra ones that they have and changed their, the salary dynamic talked about the heel trade before and so it it opens up the possibility of kicking all of the non-topping cans down the road like they could theoretically just kind of see where things go and do it from there but they also you know have an have an opportunity where you know the idea now that you brought in pascal siakam and miles turner is only under contract as of now for this season and next and then he would be unrestricted and maybe they can come to another agreement 
or or something else, or even the idea that they can re-sign him without a without pen to paper beforehand. So I my instinct in these sorts of circumstances when a team brings in a prominent player who is not young, even if Siakam isn't old, is they'll push more for the present. And I'm the first of all the heel trade as you mentioned runs directly against that. But I'm also like I'm fascinated because I don't know exactly what that is for them. And and we've got plenty of time, including hopefully a playoffs to see what this team is and what this team needs. But I'm feeling a lot less certain about where things go from here, in part because they've solidified some of the places that we were less certain about before. It's almost forced them to have to walk the two timelines thing even more delicately, right? Like they were already kind of doing that to an extent. But then, like you said, when you go get Siakam and you're also kind of dependent now on on either Andrew Benedict Mathern or Ben Shepard taking a step forward in order for you to be taking a step forward as a team and what you're hoping to do in the playoffs, it makes it even a little bit more tricky. And and, and that applies to the offseason as well. So I think for me, like, I think the most important thing in terms of them answering that question and other questions is when they get into a playoff setting, like, do they find out exactly? Because I don't feel like I know the answer to this question, to be completely honest with you. Maybe I'm getting a piece of it now that I'm seeing them kind of field their best defensive lineup against Tyrese and what necessarily the results of that have been. Is can you feel confident enough in what Tyrese as as a creator and what he's going to do with you offensively that you just have to surround him with as many defenders and lockdown defenders as possible or will they find out like no this is just what the defensive reality is going to be and we need to be you know kind of more like what we saw from Sacramento last year where we're just this has to be an otherworldly offense and then maybe you do feel that buddy loss a little bit more because like I said like he was the only person on the team where you know if Tyrese is being guarded by Giannis and buddy goes sets a ghost screen Giannis is going to release the buddy and not only release the buddy but continue to slide down the three-point line away from Tyrese when buddy moves so obviously that's you know water under the bridge but in terms of how you're going to build moving forward those are two very different ideas and I think in part like that's probably the number one thing that I'm going to be watching the rest of this season and in the playoffs, in addition to just the fluidity of the two guard spot and who kind of establishes themselves there is what do they do to protect Tyrese Halliburton on defense and how successful are they at it? Because you're seeing more and more now that like a lot of times during the regular season in the NBA teams will wait until the fourth quarter to really start, you know, targeting and mismatch hunting. And in part that's because sometimes teams wait to really start switching until the fourth quarter, which facilitates that type of mismatch hunting. But you're now seeing a lot of opponents like Boston more so than other teams. And they talked about this after the game, win at Tyrese pretty heavily from the very beginning of that game, knowing how important he is to the Pacers offense, that there was going to be a benefit to forcing him to work defensively. In addition to just, you know, what some of his own defensive struggles are that it's going to be easier for you to score. And that was even abundant up there in Toronto. Like in addition to what Toronto was doing to the Pacers in transition and just kind of run all over them with nobody stopping the ball is that Scotty Barnes, RJ Barrett were using side screens to go after Tyrese, try to get him on post-up isolations. So what all can the Pacers do to insulate that with the pieces that they have? How good and effective and how does he hold up if they're doing more hedge and recover and he's showing more on the picks? What other innovative ways can they come up with? Like whether that's him peeling out of those types of situations, whether that's something that I very quietly have pointed towards, whether I think is interesting. They've played less than 10 possessions of zone this year. Um, in part because like he 
really did struggle at the top of a two, three, like it was easy to drive against him in that situation. But do you start looking back at that as an option? Because I think that's going to be the most important question that they ask. And in terms of how else they're going to build out the roster depends on how successful they can be at, at shielding him in those situations. There are going to be a couple of teams and we obviously don't know how everything's going to go, who are going to be getting a playoff test for really the first time. And um, I mean, the Thunder are brought up for this a lot, but the Pacers are going to be really high on that list for me too, in part because of what the lessons from that will do for this team moving forward. And we'll get to learn a lot. And Tyrese Halliburton, as you mentioned, like his ascendance into NBA caliber or MVP caliber conversations, at least as a regular season player, we're going to get a lot of information on what the limitations of that are while acknowledging that what a player is at this point is not necessarily everything that they will be moving forward. And with Siakam there, like the timeline gets shifted a little bit and getting the crucible to evaluate some of these other players, even if they're not finished products, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be clarifying. And now that the next two, three years are more important than they were before, getting that evaluation and then getting the response to that evaluation right become even more essential. And in part, we already got like a mini version of this with the in-season tournament. That was obviously at a much lesser scale, but to watch the Lakers come out there, not every team's going to be as successful as the Lakers were in that particular game because not every team has Anthony Davis in terms of not only what Anthony Davis can do when he's up blitzing the ball, defending the screener and the length problems that he presents when you're trying to pass out of those traps, but also how effective he is as a backline roamer when you're in a blitz type scheme and what Cam Reddish's length was on Tyrese as well. Like not every team can facilitate that. There's a reason why there aren't that many NBA teams that just run straight up blitz defenses. It's very hard to do and have a big who has that type of foot speed and, and in addition to the length as well. But like it did reveal that like, hey, they need a secondary creator. It continued to reveal what some of their defensive issues were, where I think that they felt probably even more emboldened that like, hey, let's make a really big push for OG on an OB or let's make a really big push and ultimately get Pascal Siakam. So now that you're going to see that over a seven game series, potentially, or however long a series or multiple series last, you're going to just have a lot more information in terms of what else they need to do and how their play style holds up. And like I said, in, in terms of how important and what they're doing with Tyrese defensively, because I will say I have learned that you, you don't you don't doubt Tyrese Halliburton and what he's capable of doing and, and lifting a roster. But it's also very important, I think, just to, to get the reps as a whole. So I'm with you. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing it and cataloging what changes and strategic uh, adjustments they make for assuming that they actually make it into the top six or get out of the play in tournament if they were to slip back into that range. I think we've covered a lot, but I will I will open it to you. Is there anything else, probably more of a small thing from a from from your perspective that somebody who doesn't watch the Pacers as closely should either be keeping an eye on the rest of the year or maybe should should appreciate when they watch a Pacers game? I think if there, if there's any just two like tiny nitty gritty things that'll be continuing to watch like if their pace or not even necessarily the pace, but their transition efficiency and frequency, if they can get that back up to the levels that it was because that has dipped and because you are seeing more teams applying full court pressure and not like, not necessarily like diamond presses, but just like more token press where, you know, if the Pacers do call a timeout and they come out, you're going to see that it's going to automatically be a full court press and what they're doing against Tyrese in those situations. And also, like I said, I'm 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 curious to find out if they will end up putting 
any zone back into their defensive package or if that's something that they considered at all over the all-star break because like if you look at like I'll ask you like you watch the Miami Heat there's times where Eric Spolstra puts Duncan Robinson at the bottom of that 2-3 zone yep. and that kind of shields him to a degree and there's also times where I've watched like Cleveland play in the past their Superman zone as they referred to it with Evan Mobley up at the top and have him at the top of a 3-2 and then on post touches have him slide back and it becomes a 2-3 and when I mentioned earlier about like you know Tyrese was really holding up at the top of a 2-3 zone well they didn't really have any options to relocate him within a zone before because you know who else were you going to put up there if you wanted to move him to the back line well now they do have Siakam and they at least have Siakam's length so would they consider with this lineup you know would you be willing to put Siakam and Neesmith and Nemhart at the top and maybe try to do something where it at least makes it at least teams have to think more and you have to have zone busters ready to get to Tyrese in the corner of that. Like it's just it's something that I'm gonna keep an eye on because we know that Rick Carlisle likes to play matchup zones. We know that he can teach matchup zones, and it's something that they were using heavily the last two seasons, and they kind of took it out because they wanted to simplify things defensively, make things more basic for a younger roster. But even if it's not an attack mechanism, because it's not gonna be to the degree that it was with the Raptors and like what how they would have used OG and Pascal under Nick Nurse. But even if it's just like something that you use for a couple possessions as a protective measure so that he's not getting hunted, it's it's just something I have in the back of my head. I've thought a lot about the Heat as kind of a, a template for parts of what the Pacers do. And and it's Miami's overall defensive personnel was has been ridiculous mm-hmm. in some of these years. So like hiding Goran Dragic or at times Robinson or at times Hero can be easier when you have him at a bio, Jimmy Butler, right. and usually a lot of length there spots. But the general concept, I think, is sound and is something that they can go to to and I it's something what I, you know I've covered the league now for a long time it's something that coaches bring up a lot is that there really aren't that many opportunities to add things in season well yep. one of them is what just happened right now and the Pacers did have more because the you know the the all-star game was was in their city and everything else like that and of course Tyrese was a significant part of it but there there is an opportunity right now for whether it's that you develop it tactically as a coaching staff or you even start implementing it teaching the players and getting everything your best shot if it were to happen is now that doesn't mean you deploy it in late February early March but probably want to try it out a little bit and I I was stunned when he said they've only played 10 zone possessions overall this year it's definitely an option even if it doesn't end up being the path forward yeah because what you have to look at is it's it's always a different calculus with the Pacers because like what I just said in comparing Pascal and and the Nick Nurse zones you're you're doing that as an attack mechanism and also like hey if Nick Nurse tries this and and it goes really you know off the rails like then that's that's a big swing that's a risk for you in terms of the Pacers when you're already 25th in defensive rating and you're struggling to find ways to necessarily protect Tyrese in those situations and and you try something the risk isn't as big like you're you're not you're not experiencing potentially as much slippage when you're already kind of in in the slippery spot so to speak so that's just something that I, I think tactically I would give a look at if I were them. The Pacers are going to be intensely fascinating and fun to watch the rest of this year. I will thank you so much for taking the time. Hey, thanks as always for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much to Caitlin Cooper for taking the time to come on. You can and absolutely should read her excellent work on the basketball she wrote, Patreon. It is phenomenal. I'm such a huge fan of her analysis and all the great work that she does. If you see that she's going to be on a podcast or anything else, just check it out and love having her on. 
So support her work. But if you want to support Real GM Radio, there are a lot of things you can do. You can subscribe, download every episode in the podcast player of your choosing. Could be Apple, it could be Spotify, it could be wherever. And if we're not somewhere that you want us to be, just let me know. And I will pass that up the chain to somebody who can actually move that process along because that is most certainly not me. You can also help other people find the show, that is, by leaving a rating or review in the podcast player of your choosing, or word of mouth, social media, wherever you want to go there. Much appreciated. But the single most important thing for Real GM Radio and any other podcast that has them is to check out our sponsors. And new one for this episode, so that means it's even more important, Factor. It's awesome. I'm really impressed with them. Factormeals.com slash RealGM50, R-E-A-L-G-M-5-0, and that's for a 50% off, which is fantastic. You can also check out FanDuel, FanDuel.com slash Boston. They have a great promotion going on now. If you have a bet that hits, then you get bonus money. It's fantastic. You can also check out my other work. I have written a couple things at The Athletic, tied in with the trade deadline, and you can all that should be there. I'm And I did my team-by-team early off-season preview for 2024 and some of the changes that happened at the deadline, including with the Oklahoma City Thunder, who I may write about again because I'm obsessed with the Oklahoma City Thunder. Also, of course, Dunked On, Dunked On Prime. We took a little, a partial break. I mean, we still recorded, I think, like three or four episodes in the last week. But and then now we'll be back full bore starting this weekend with the 15 and 60. And then the NBA Strategy Stream, the show that we do with NBA League Pass, that will be back on Monday. We are going to be doing Pistons-Knicks, which should be very interesting, especially because those two teams made a significant trade. And yeah, it's it's fun to get back in. It was nice to have some time off, and I'm I'm happy that the All Star break provides that now. And it's funny, I was so mad at the time that the deadline is now before All Star break, and in part for work life balance and everything else. I'm super happy that it's the other way now. So kudos to those who made that decision, even though I criticized it at the time. And if you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I'll try to reply. I admit I'm not the best at it. I have a lot of other things going on, but I do read it. It's, I have a specific place that they go. I check it every single day. I often reread them, um, but that's how I make the show better. It's how I take your input, everything else like that. And that is all for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.